2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to be uh, spending time in verses 1 through 13. Um, considering this position is, is a position of, of intentional discipleship, I thought it would be appropriate for us this morning to consider a blueprint for discipleship. And so uh, if you have made your way to 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 13 together. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crop. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray. Father God, we come into your presence now, thankful for what you've already done in the midst of all of us. God, we thank you for Wason and the choir. God, we thank you for the, for the children that, that sang and led us to the throne this morning. Father, there was a, a, a sweet spirit in the air during worship this morning. God, as we now consider your word together, I pray that this word would nourish your bride. God, I pray that as we talk about a blueprint for discipleship, I pray that you would give us understanding. And I pray that at the end of this service, we may look more like you than we did at the beginning. And so, Father, we pray now asking what we know not, you would teach us. And what we are not, you would make us for your glory and our good. It's all us pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we consider a, a blueprint for discipleship this morning, church, the first thing we have to do is we have to consider uh, the context of the passage that we're in. Anytime we're doing good biblical hermeneutics or... or um, or biblical exegesis, what we need to do is we need to consider the context that every passage is in. And so what we need to do here is we need to take the passage that we just read and we need to situate it within the narrative of the New Testament. And so what, what we see in the letter to, to Timothy, in the second letter, is that Paul, the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary church planner uh, that really the world has ever seen or known, goes uh, or is, is, is writing this letter from prison. We know that he's in a Roman prison and it appears to be his, his second imprisonment at Rome. And we know that he is likely to be executed within short order. We know that Timothy is Paul's uh, kind of spiritual son in the faith. Now, he wasn't literally Timothy's father, but what we know is um, we don't really know much about, about Timothy's father. We know that his mother and grandmother really had made a great investment into his life. 
But what we see is we know that, that, that Timothy has a need for a spiritual father to step in. And so Paul, being the man that he is, investing in the next generation, he steps up to the plate and he makes that investment in his young son in the faith, Timothy. And so what happens here is knowing and considering the fact that Paul knows he is soon to be executed, he writes this personal letter to Timothy who is on location at the church of Ephesus. And, and we know that what he's doing is he's encouraging him to endure. He's encouraging him to, to endure suffering as a good soldier. And, and we're going to get into the illustrations here in a second. But really what this letter serves as is it serves as some final marching orders for Timothy in the faith. Danny Aiken, the president of Southeastern Seminary, he always says that last words are meant to be lasting words. That really the mission and the vision of the church are built upon the last marching orders of Jesus, and that is to go and baptize and, and uh, go, go and make disciples of all na nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He tells them to be witnesses. And so we know that Paul is using this letter to his son in the faith as some final marching orders. You see, in, what we need to do is we need to also understand that in any text we consider, there's what's explicitly said within the text, but there's also implicitly the message that underlie, uh, underlies all of it. And so what Paul says here in our text is he, he gives us these illustrations for what the life in Christ, the life as a disciple of Jesus Christ should look like. But the implications there, what's not explicitly said is it's this idea of endurance. It's this idea of enduring the long, difficult journey of following Jesus together. It's this idea, this idea of enduring in the, the, the life of a follower of Jesus. It really is this idea that we need to press on. We need to keep putting one foot in front of the other, taking the next right step and pursuing Jesus with everything that we have. And so as we consider this text, I want you to keep in mind the fact that Paul is calling Timothy to endure in this life as a disciple. And so... The first thing we see, if you'll turn your attention with me again to verses 1 and 2, the first thing we see is we see a model of discipleship. Verse 1, so, you, so uh, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see, what, what, what Paul does here is he opens his text by revealing the very source of our discipleship. Our text opens with Paul calling Timothy to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, if that's the case, if that imperative is at the very beginning of this text, what Paul is making clear is, he is he's telling Timothy, he's saying, if you're going to endure, you must be strengthened by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, but much more than that, what he's, what he's telling Timothy is he is saying, if you are to be strengthened for the journey that you're on, it's going to require you to be strengthened by an outside agent. What I mean by that is he, he is saying to Timothy, he's not saying you need to be strengthened by your own effort. You need to be strengthened by your academic study of God's word. You need to be strengthened by the vision and mission of what you think about ministry. No, what Paul is telling Timothy is he is saying you need to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That has a, a, a serious implication for us this morning, church. Not only is that call, is that challenge uh, for, uh, for Timothy, but it also is for us. We need to understand this, um, and I want you to stay with me here, 
because I don't want to communicate something to you incorrectly, but I want you to understand that the Bible was not written to you. Now, before you throw your Bible at me, it was written for you. Here's what I mean. This letter was not written to Drake Whitten. It wasn't written to Keenan Braden. It wasn't written to you individually, but it was written for you. And so if that's the case, if, if Paul is telling Timothy, you need to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, then that is the same challenge for us in 2024. Now, let, let's, let's consider our call in, in our current day so we can kind of situate this within the context of our own life. As disciples of Jesus, we're called to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and to teach others to observe all that he has commanded. As disciples, we are compelled to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And as disciples, we have been made new in Christ. We've been rescued from the domain of darkness. He has made us alive in Christ. And because of that, he has given you and he has given me the ministry of reconciliation. And so the way that fleshes itself out is as we leave here today, where you live, where you work, and where you play, God has called you and compelled you to be on mission. You see, th there's this idea, and I, I didn't mention this to the 8 a.m., but there's this idea that, that, that evangelism and discipleship are uh, two ideas that are separate from one another. But the reality is when you, when you divorce discipleship and evangelism or missions from one another, you really cheapen the definition of both of them in the process. And so God has called you and me as his witnesses to be about his mission where you live, where you work, and where you play and in all of these things, it will require us to be strengthened. But I want you to know this text makes it clear. You can try as you might to do this life in Christ alone, but it will always lead you to being tired, broken, and weary. Church, I've tried to do things on my own power, to do things on my own strength, to do things on my own understanding. I've tried to, to plan my life for myself, and God just laughs. I want you to know that if we are to be his ambassadors wherever he calls us, then we are going to need strengthening, but it is going to require a knowledge of the gospel of Jesus. So the first thing we see is we see our source of discipleship, but the second thing is we see our goal of our discipleship. You see, Timothy has long been a co-laborer with Paul in the ministry. He has gone on missionary journeys with him. He has helped him plant churches. He has done a lot of things alongside of Timothy. But their relationship goes far deeper than just that of being a co-worker. No, Paul, as we mentioned before, he is literally the spiritual father to Timothy. And so what, what does that mean for us? Well, the, the simple challenge there is that we invest our lives into other people. You see, Paul has invested into the next generation. And so when he writes this, there is a four-generation timeline that he is working with. He's the first generation, and he's invested in the second generation, which is Timothy. And then he tells Timothy to, to go and teach faithful men to do likewise. And so the third generation is whoever Timothy invests in. And then the fourth is whoever they invest in. And so this process of discipleship really is, uh, really does call us and compel us to replicate what we have been entrusted with. What I want you to know this morning is that the gospel came to you on its way to somebody else. And the gospel is only good news if it makes it there on time. 
And so we see our source of discipleship being the, the glorious gospel of Jesus, but the goal of our discipleship is generational replication from us to the next generation. Paul has taught Timothy all he knows about theology and about planting churches and about missions and all about all these things, but much more importantly than that, he simply does life with Timothy. It reminds you of the relationship that Jesus has with his disciples. Jesus calls 12 ordinary men, ordinary young men who are not educated into the gospel ministry, and it is through those 12 men that really the vision and the mission of the early church is established and how the gospel gets to Athens, Alabama. And so what we see is that the call for you and the call for me this morning is that we are to invest what we have been entrusted with into the next generation who would go and do likewise. See, Paul, in this text, he has the same thing in mind that he, uh, that he shares with the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. There he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's the ESV version. In other words, putting it more simply, what Paul says is he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Church, I don't know about you, but I'd be willing to bet that the, that the same that I could say would be, the same, uh, would be true for you too, that you have had people in your life that you can look at and say, I'm going to follow them as they follow Christ. I'm going to uh, watch their life. I'm going to watch their doctrine. I'm going to watch how they love people, how they love the church. And I'm going to follow them as they follow Christ. And so the question is this morning, as we consider a model for discipleship, is, is there anyone in your life that you can point to where you can say, they follow Jesus better because they know me? Their, their faith their doctrine, their theology, whatever it may be, is more vibrant because they know me. I can tell you I've had many men in my life who have invested in me and have poured into me. Uh, listen, for the last two years, Kenan's been one of those guys. And so I want you to know this morning that that is the model of discipleship, and, and it is a challenge for us this morning. Okay, so now that we've considered a model of discipleship, now what we do is we shift our attention to the three illustrations that Paul gives Timothy. And, and these illustrations, what they're doing is they serve as things to say, hey, if you are a disciple of Jesus, these things should mark your life. You with me? We good? All right. Let's look at, uh, look at verses three and four again with me, and let's consider the first illustration, which is the illustration of the soldier. Verse three. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. You see, the first illustration we're given is this of a soldier. And in these, in these two verses, Paul communicates really two essential truths about soldiers. The first being this, that soldiers endure suffering. We see that in verse 3. Listen, I don't know this experientially. I never served uh, in the military or, uh, or anything like that. But here's what I know about soldiers. They endure great difficulty. They train relentlessly. They endure harsh conditions. They have to make do when they have less. They, uh, they have to deal with, with not so ideal conditions and scenarios. And so soldiers endure great suffering. And in the same way, we as disciples of Christ must be strengthened to endure. 
Now, I'm afraid in the year of our Lord, 2024, in American evangelicalism, we have created and perpetuated this expectation that the life in Christ is immune to difficulty. That there are pastors in pulpits all over America, all over your social media feeds, all over the internet, who will suggest that following Jesus means that you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. And the problem with that is it goes directly against both Scripture and the history of the church. All of the apostles who followed Jesus, they died bad. They died real bad. Crucified upside down. Beheaded. Drugged through the streets. Many more missionaries in the early church die of starvation and go without. The Apostle Paul himself, he is beaten, he's shipwrecked, he is adrift at sea, he's hungry, he's thirsty, he's cold, he's, he's too hot. He has gone through tremendous difficulty. And yet somehow in 2024, despite the history of the early church and despite the testimony of Scripture, we believe, many of us, that if we go through difficulty, it must mean that we don't have enough favor from God or that God has turned his back on us. Church, Scripture is clear, and Jesus is really clear throughout his gospel ministry that trouble is promised. Suffering will come. Jesus promised, he says, if they hated me, or if they hate you first, you got to remember, they hated me. He says that in this world you will have trouble, but he reminds us, the promise is to take heart, for he has overcome the world. And so really, the, the life in Christ doesn't promise a life devoid of suffering, but rather, it promises that Christ will be with us in it. You're aware of the 23rd Psalm. It's a very famous psalm. And it's read at many, many funerals. Uh, I'm sure you've probably heard it. But the, the promise and the good news of Psalm 23 is not that, that we won't walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The promise uh, is that he will be with us in it. And so somewhere we have, as American evangelicals, we have, have created this idea that, that the life in Christ is immune to difficulty. But... When we situate what Paul is saying to Timothy here within the context of church history, we understand that, that first, Paul is calling Timothy to something that he knows well. Paul has suffered tremendously for the sake of the gospel. But not only is he just calling Timothy to do something that he knows and identifies well, in a much larger sense, Paul is calling Timothy to identify with the very suffering of Jesus. Listen, Paul suffered, but he didn't suffer like Jesus. The question for us this morning is, who has suffered like Jesus? I would go off on a limb and say no one. You see, he was despised and he was rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That reading is from the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 53 really is this kind of Mount Rushmore text of the Bible. If I was stranded on an island and I could only take four chapters of the Bible, I promise you Isaiah 53 would be one of those. But Isaiah 53 is this promise that there would be a suffering servant who would come to live a perfect and sinless life and he would be despised and rejected by man, but he would ultimately wear the penalty of sin on the cross for you and me. 
And so what Paul does here is he tells Timothy, he says, you need to suffer, you need to endure suffering like a good soldier. But he's saying, listen, I have suffered before you and much more before me, our Lord and Savior Jesus. He bled and died on a criminal's cross to purchase you back and to bring you back into the fold of God. And so first we see that soldiers endure suffering. But secondly, we also see that soldiers focus on the mission. You see, in verse 4, it says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Now, we need to understand this kind of in a twofold way as well. We need to understand that Paul is calling Timothy to keep the main thing the main thing. You see, first, we need to understand this challenge both personally, but we also need to understand it corporately. And so first, we need to focus on the mission personally. Church, the, the sin of our generation is busyness. I'm going to say that again so it lands. The sin of this generation is busyness. Long gone are the days where we have blank space in our calendar. And by the way, when I tell you this, I'm not telling you this to step on your toes. I'm telling you this to remind myself just as much as anything. You should see the calendar on the wall in our house. But long gone are the days of blank space in our calendars, and so the sin of our generation is busyness. And so we see that, listen, it's always, we, we have another ball game to get to. We have another dance recital to get to. We have another band competition or a choir concert. Or we have this, that, or the other that we have to get to. And what happens is we, we allow things that are not necessarily uh, bad uh, become idols in our life. And so, like, even... Even some of the good things in our life, like there are good things that sometimes we need to learn to say no to. Uh, again, I'll quote Danny Aiken, the president at Southeastern Seminary. He, he says uh, one of the challenges that, that he gave to graduates the day before we graduated in December is he said, listen, you need to make sure in your ministry you prioritize things correctly. And so what he said, he said, listen, there's going to be good things in your ministry that could take up all of your time. And sometimes you don't need to do those things. He says, you need to learn to say no to, some, to the good things so you can say yes to the best things. And so church, we, we need to understand that, that soldiers focus on the mission personally. They cloud out everything else that they have going on and they know their commanding officer has given them individually a specific job to do. By the way, this implication has, has, has massive, um, it, it is really of massive importance for us this morning. And, and the reason for that is because, listen, when we understand what God has called us and compelled us to do, we understand that like God has called you to whatever he's called you to for a reason. Not everybody is a pastor that's going to stand up in a pulpit and challenge you and encourage you on a Sunday to Sunday basis. But listen, like God hadn't called me to be a teacher. God hadn't called me to be a nurse. God hadn't called me to be a doctor or a lawyer. And so God has gifted you uniquely to do what he's called you to do so that you could be an ambassador for him in your workplace. Listen, like, I'm all about having events on campus of a church, but if that's the evangelistic strategy of a church, the, there, there is no missional emphasis, and it's just like, hey, let's see how many lost people we can get from where they are to our campuses for the sake of evangelism, it's, um, it's a nice idea. It's a terrible evangelistic strategy. Look at the history of the early church. Keenan is going to be teaching an SMTI. Um, you're going to be teaching on Acts coming up, right? Oh, you, okay. Somebody's going to be teaching about Acts, which is the spread of the early church for, for the Ministry Training Institute. And listen, when you look at that, 
You've got to understand that like, the gospel doesn't leave Jerusalem until Acts chapter 8. And when it does, the pastors are the ones that stay in Jerusalem. It's the laity that are empowered to go and preach the gospel everywhere they go. And so listen, like, God has called you to what he's called you to for a reason. So walk in it. So first we have to understand uh, that we have to focus on the mission personally, but the second thing is we have to focus on the mission corporately. You see, in the same way we need to focus for us, we as a body need to keep the main thing the main thing as well. There are many things that can divide the body of Christ. I want you to know that I've served in, in, in a couple different ministries. I've served a couple different churches in the, the course of my ministry. I want you to know that there are a lot of things that I've seen that have been divisive inside the body of Christ. Listen, it, it could be a worship style, you know. Well, I like hymns. Well, I like contemporary. Well, let me break it to you. God can be glorified in either one of those. Uh, it, you know, it, it could be um, a particular committee. It could be the color of the carpet, you know. I want you to know that God can be glorified by blue carpet, gray carpet, brown carpet, no carpet, wood floor, tile, linoleum, doesn't matter. God can be glorified in all those things. And so sometimes what, what we do is the bride of Christ will allow ourselves to focus on things that really are, are not of first level importance. Listen, if we truly believe what we say we believe, then God has entrusted to each and every single one of us the ministry of reconciliation. And so if that's the case, I want you to know that, like, listen, I love the gray carpet in here. We should never let that divide us. The mission of the glorious gospel that we've been called to is of first-level importance. You see, what happens is sometimes when we let those, those um, tertiary issues become really uh, important in our lives, sometimes what we do is we take our focal point of our worship, and it's no longer Jesus. The focal point of our worship is us, and it's our preferences and what we want. And so what happens is each and every single one of you in the pew, and by the way, me too, when I'm sitting there, we, we sometimes have this attitude of bless me, pastor, if you can. I want the worship to fit my preferences. I want the word of God to be proclaimed in a way that, that is encouraging but doesn't step on my toes too much. And I'm just telling you, that's not what we've been called to do. And so we, as followers of Jesus, we need to make sure that the focal point of our worship is God, and so we need to focus on the mission, both personally and corporately, like a soldier. Well, the, the second thing that we see, uh, second illustration is in verse 5, and we see the, the illustration of the athlete. Verse 5, it says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Again, we're going to look at this in a, in a twofold manner. We need to understand that, uh, that first, athletes compete according to the rules. Now, um, pretty, pretty self-explanatory. We as followers of Jesus, we have a rule book, right? We have guidelines for our life. We have scriptures that command us and challenge us to live a particular way. But now listen, we need to do a little bit of work here so we can understand the, the correct paradigm that we need to have about scripture. God does not command us in the way that he does. He does not give us guidelines in the way that he does so that he can be some cosmic bully in heaven looking down upon us with a magnifying glass and, and serving as, as this cosmic killjoy. No, like God is honored and glorified when we have fun and when we enjoy life. But, but, but God commands us and gives us guidelines in the way that he does because he's the sovereign creator of all things. And because of that, watch your toes he knows better than you do, and he knows better than I do. And so be, because of that, in his, 
in his unsearchable wisdom, God commands us in the way that he does because he knows what ultimately is going to work out for our good, for our, for, to bring us life, to give us purpose, and ultimately lead to human, human flourishing. And so listen, when we begin to believe that God is withholding good from us because he says do this and don't do this, what we do is sometimes we, we start to, cre- uh, to lobby accusations towards God and we say, God, you are not good because I can't do that thing. God, because you've commanded me in this way, you can't be good and right and just in my life. And church, if we remember our Bibles... When you go back to Genesis and you read of the fall of man, that is how we got here in the first place. Adam and Eve are in the garden and God has blessed them tremendously and they look at the fruit and they decide to choose autonomy from God. Now, now here's what I mean by that. They, they look at the fruit and they say, listen, God gave us all these things, but he didn't give us that one. And because of that one, God's not actually good. And so they take of the fruit and they eat it. When you boil down every sin in your life and every sin in my life, it really is this idea that you are choosing autonomy from God. You are choosing what is good, what is right, and what is just for yourself. And church, just like when we try and do this life on our own, it is always going to lead to brokenness. It's always going to leave you empty and in need of a Savior. And so we see... The, scripture, the scriptures are inspired by God and they're profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. Listen, scripture, it brings us life. It gives us purpose and ultimately it leads to our flourishing. And so we as followers of Christ, we must be people of the book. You know, it's amazing. Like there are pastors in pulpits all over the country who will try to come up with, with you know, with... Uh, with, with silly uh, sermon series or silly illustrations, and they will do everything in their power to make the Word of God more relevant. And I want you to know it's foolishness in pulpits everywhere. What we need is we need to faithfully be people of the book. You know what's funny? It's like when people from outside the church come inside the church, you know, it's funny, like they expect the Word of God to be preached because we're a church, we do the Bible. And so we, as faithful followers of Jesus, we need to be people of the book. Well, first, athletes compete according to the rules. But secondly, athletes discipline themselves to compete. This one will be very brief. Understand that athletes are people of great discipline. They, they have a, a particular workout regimen. They, they take care of their bodies. They take care of their diet. They have a very regimented schedule. Everything they do has purpose. And so what Paul is calling Timothy to is he's saying, listen, you need to absolutely compete according to the rules, but also you need to discipline yourselves to compete. We, as followers of Jesus, we, we willingly open ourselves up to this process of sanctification. Sanctification, all it is, is a big word, meaning we look more and more like Jesus every given day. It's this, it's this idea or theme in our life that we take every decision, we take every, um, every action in our life, we take everything that we have and everything about us, and we bring it under the lordship of Christ. And so that is what Paul means when he tells Timothy to be people of great discipline. All right, the, the, the third illustration we're given is, is the illustration of the farmer. Look again at verse 6. It says, It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Understand this. Uh, farmers, they work diligently while receiving little to no fanfare. Now, uh, there may be farmers in this room. I don't know. Uh, if not, you probably know a farmer. You know that, uh, that farmers wake up early in the morning 
and, and they commit their life to diligent, tumultuous work that is often met with no fanfare, no support. You know, it's not a sexy job, so to speak. Listen, we as followers of Jesus must be willing to commit to the hard things required of us as followers. Following Christ is a commitment to the hard work of knowing Christ better every single day. You see, this thing, one of the things about the church that's funny, the state of the church today, is that like we as followers of Jesus, we value the charismatic conferences. We value charismatic worship. We value all of these things. And, And to be clear, like I do too, there's nothing wrong with those things. But what we believe is we almost believe that like the Holy Spirit is more present in a charismatic worship setting than he is at our kitchen table on a Tuesday morning. And what I want you to know, church, is like, it's like the, what a boring faith that would be if we're dependent upon what Kenan and I or Kenan and whoever fills this pulpit does on a, on a Sunday to Sunday basis. Like if you're basing your faith in Christ just on what a preacher says about this book once a week, number one, you're living a terribly boring faith. But number two, you're not committing to how God actually changes and transforms us. The way we, are, we grow in the, the likeness and in the image of Christ, what we do is we commit to the daily hard work of knowing Christ better. And so, like, listen, God moves far more in the mundane Tuesday morning Bible studies in our homes than he does otherwise. You see, if we want intimacy with Christ, we have to understand that, that like, we have to commit intentional alone time to him. Now, I left this out in the first service because we were running low on time, but listen, we, it's unlimited time in 11. So, so I want to I tell you something. Intimacy is cultivated by spending alone time with the one you love. And what do I mean by that? Um, Taylor and I, we, we love a good double date. Like we enjoy getting together with friends and, and uh, breaking bread with one another and, and you know, sharing life and, and, and talking things over. But like there's a certain level of intimacy you get to when you're just on a double date. And what do I mean by that? Like, there's questions that, like, like, when I need to check up on Taylor's heart, I don't ask her in the presence of friends. And the same deal, when she needs to check up on me, she, like, she didn't ask that, ask those questions in the presence of, of other people. And so, like, there's a certain level, it's just kind of, like, like, it's fun and it's good, and it's good to do life with people. I just encourage you to, to invest your life in other people. But there's only a sur- surface level intimacy that you can get with somebody when you're on a double date. And so intimacy is cultivated by spending alone time with the one that you love. Because what happens is when you spend uh, intimate time together, your intimacy with somebody, it grows your capacity to know them better. What do I mean? When you're intimate, when 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 you ask those deep, difficult, challenging questions, your capacity to know them expands. Well, church, if we're going to be people of the book, If we're going to be people that that live as God has called us to live, then we need to have a tremendous capacity to know our Lord. And so what you need to do is you need to commit to the daily hard work of being a farmer. Listen, yes, go to the conferences. They just had a men's conference at Clements, and our pastor preached a really good sermon, in my opinion. And that was great. There was great worship. Listen, what, what, what the kids did up here, tremendous. But if you are valuing that to the detriment of spending alone time daily with Jesus, I'm telling you, you're missing tremendous blessings in your spiritual life. Well, the final thing we see, so, so you ask, okay, well, what are, why are those illustrations important? Well, the reason is, is because of our motivation, our motivation to endure. 
Um, and that's what we see in verses 8 through 13. Now, I'm not going to read every single one of these verses again for, for time's sake. I do want you to get to the buffet before the Methodists do. Um, but um, that didn't land like I thought it would. That was, um, that was lame. Um, we're not, we're not going to, to, to read every single verse again, but I am going to read verses 11, or 11 through 13. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we also will reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we're faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot, um, for he cannot deny himself. You see, Paul concludes his challenge to Timothy in this section by revealing our motivation for endurance. In the, again, let's make sure we resituate these verses within the context of where Paul is. Paul is writing from prison, and he knows that he is going to die soon. And so with this in mind, like this, this whole idea of enduring difficulty in the life uh, of a follower of Jesus has been in the background of our minds the whole time. And so he gets to this point and, and he says, listen, the reason you need to be a soldier, the reason you need to be an athlete, the reason you need to be a farmer is because of the glorious gospel that you have been called to. He, he, he makes it clear in, in this passage a few things that have massive implications for us that I want us to go over and then we'll shut it down. First, what we see in, in these final verses is that Paul is bound, but the gospel is not. Now, what do I mean by that? Paul is literally sitting in shackles and in chains. He is in prison. And, and what he makes clear to Timothy is he says, listen, I'm bound, but the gospel is not. Church, Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 establishes a promise that he is going to establish his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So here's the reality. While, while a preacher may get arrested or while even like, you guys remember how crazy COVID was? Like, you know, we had all these, all these you know, uh, kind of rules from, from the government that like you can't meet and you had all these, all these rules and all that. Listen, like even something as crazy as COVID could not uh, hinder the spread of the gospel. I want you to know that like, there are churches all over the country on, on a regular basis that close their doors because they have, they have not kept the main thing the main thing. But I want you to know the collective C, big C church, will be established forever. And because of that, Paul is sitting in chains and he is sitting in shackles, but he tells Timothy, he says, this gospel is not bound. The second thing we see is we see that, that, that what Paul tells Timothy, he says, if we have died with him, we also will live with him. Now, being the Baptist preacher I am, I have to have two points to everything, so this is another twofold deal. But we have to understand what it means to, die with, to, to have died with him, both positionally and experientially. Now, what do I mean by that? He says, if we've died with him, we also will live with him. Well, first, we must have died with him positionally. Galatians 2.20 says that I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what is Paul telling the Galatian church there? He is saying that the old him that existed before his life in Christ is dead and gone. It was, it was put upon Jesus when he died on the cross. And so what I want you to know in this room today, church, is that each and every single one of us were born into sin, separated from God. 
And we are sprinting towards hell. We actively participate in the things that God hates. We actively give ourselves over to the things that God despises. And so God, being rich in grace and in mercy, he has established a way for us to be redeemed and reconciled back unto himself. And so positionally, we must have died with Christ, meaning the old us is dead and buried and gone. When the old me... Listen, I want you to know, like, it took a long time to shake off the shackles of the old life. But what I want you to know is when, that, when the old me died with Jesus, he existed no more. And so, like, people that I used to know in high school, they could come up to me and say, Drake, I cannot believe you're a pastor uh, for, for how foolish you were in high school, for how arrogant you were in high school, for how this, that, and the other. I cannot believe you're a pastor. And what I tell them is, good, that guy died with Jesus on the cross. So you have to have died positionally, you have to be united with Christ, but secondly, we must die with him experientially. Luke 9, 23, Jesus makes it clear that if anyone would be his disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow him. And so not only should we have positionally died with Christ, but also experientially in our everyday experience. We as followers of Jesus wake up every single morning. We have an open-handed posture. And we say, God, what do you have for me today? Not my will, not my desires, not my passions. No, no, no. Every day we wake up, when our feet hit the floor, we die to the world, we die to sin, and we die to ourselves. You see, we are, when we're saved, we're saved from our sin, we're saved into a church, and we're saved onto mission for the sake of the gospel. And if you want to do any of those things, you're going to have to be positionally uh, dead with Christ, and you're also going to have to do it on a daily basis. As the guys come back up, we have two more points I want us to consider. And, and, and see, the, the last two are, are really are the, the promises of the gospel that Paul finally kind of leaves us with in t uh, to Timothy. You see, what he says here is he says, if we endure, we also will reign with him. Again, there, there comes that idea of endurance. You see, this, this promise from Paul to Timothy is that there is a reward for those who endure. Church, for those who, who persevere and who see this thing to the end, they will rule and reign with Christ forever. Now listen, I, I told the first crew, I don't know exactly what that means in terms of what, how that's going to flesh itself out and exactly what that's going to look like. But what I do know is that for those who endure until the end, they will have an inheritance. And that inheritance is life with Christ forever. You see, and then the final command, the final challenge, or the final encouragement that Paul gives Timothy here is he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. See, church, Scripture paints a pretty bleak picture of our spiritual state apart from Christ. See, Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. But see, God being rich in grace and mercy, he established a plan. And listen, that plan did not start in Matthew. That plan started all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That, that's right after Adam and Eve have sinned, and God is pronouncing judgment upon our adversary. And what he does is he promises that there would be uh, from the seed of a woman, there would be a victor who would come, who would crush the head of the serpent. Now, in that process, the serpent would bruise the heel of our 
of our Savior. And listen, on, 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 on that Friday, it, it looked like, like evil had won. Jesus dies, he's, he's buried, but you, you're, you're probably familiar with that famous video. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. You see, it was a pretty bleak picture of our spiritual state apart from Christ. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together in Christ. And so listen, the beauty of the gospel could be summed up in this idea that if we're faithless, he remains faithful. Listen, the beauty of the gospel is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of the cross of Christ, even then, God sent forth his son to die on a cross to save you and me from our sin. I want you to know that he was a perfect spotless lamb, and it had to be to serve as a propitiation for our sin. But you see, God has long established this plan, that for those who put their trust and who put their faith in Christ, he, uh, he will save them. And so listen, you may be in this room this morning and you go, okay, that all sounds good, but man, that's just not where I'm at spiritually. I want you to know it could be. Like positionally, like you could change forever this morning. You see, all you have to do to come to faith in Christ, you have to admit that you are a sinner. And I'm just telling you, every one of us are in this room. You have to believe in your heart that, that God raised Jesus from the dead. You have to believe that he is who he says he is. He did what he said he did. And ultimately, you have to confess him as Lord of your life. And so listen, Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so here in a second, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to stand and we're going to sing a, a hymn of invitation. And listen, the staff, they're all going to be down here front. Listen. I, you haven't voted anything to affirm me or not this morning, but listen, I'd love to pray with you if you would like for me to. Maybe you're in this room and maybe it's not salvation. Maybe it's just a burden that you need to come lay at the altar this morning. Whatever it is, I pray that you would be obedient to what the Spirit is doing. I thank you for this opportunity and I look forward to hopefully many days ahead.